All right, we're going to do things a little differently tonight. We are having a little technical difficulty, so we're going to do this video, and we'll post it to Facebook a little bit later on and also to the YouTube channel as well as the podcast channel. So let's start all over since nothing seems to have been working. So we'll start with a prayer first this evening. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Lord, we ask that you'll stretch forth your hand. Lord, that you'll move on those that are going to listen, Lord, later on this evening or into the future. God, that you'll bless them. Lord, that you'll use your spirit and draw them closer to you, Lord. We ask that you'll move and that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message. And, Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Tonight we are going to be in chapter 4 of Revelation. We're just getting started. I'll go ahead and tell you the little joke that I tried to tell earlier. Maybe that's what killed the Internet. But uh, when I opened, got my notebook opened and I was standing here, I looked down and I was still in chapter 1 and I said, whoa, told my wife, I said, I better move over to chapter four. We're going to start all over again. And she looked at me and went, oh, no. Apparently, she doesn't want to start all over again. But we are in chapter four, starting with verse one. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, at the trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. After the letters to the seven churches were written, John saw an open door. Now, we don't know if this was immediately after or if there was a little time between the last letter to the church of Laodicea and this portion of the vision, a.k.a. Revelation, but we know that it was after the letter. And if there was or wasn't a time lapse, that's not important. We know that John saw an open door. But what does an open door represent? A door that is open signifies access. If the door was closed, it would mean that access would be limited and selective. However, with an open door, there are no limitations to who has access, and there are no respecter of people. That's from Romans chapter 2. Verse 11, since Christ had died on the cross and the veil separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in half from the top to the bottom, Christ has become the door in which we must go through to reach the throne room of God. And for that fact, heaven also. You know, we all talk about you know, the pearly gates and going through them. Wonderful. But we have got to go through Christ first before we can even get through the holy, the pearly gates. And just a little side note, my mom always said the pearly gates was named after her. God loved her so much that he named his gates after her. Her name was Pearly. I think the gates was there a little bit before my mother, but that's another story. We never, we never corrected mom. Since Christ had died on the cross, the veil had separating was torn he is the door we have to go through to get into the throne room of God and in heaven. We worship God the Father through God the Son at the drawing and urging of God the Spirit. Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9, 
He describes himself as a door or as a gate. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The door stands open in heaven for all to enter. If the individual will come and accept what Christ did for them on the cross of Calvary, and if the individual will confess their sins to Christ, they can enter through the open door. And in fact, enter boldly into the throne room of God. John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The open door is there for all. But unfortunately, only a few will enter through the door to their eternal rest. Revelations 1 and 19 says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. This verse signifies the things to come. And Revelation 4 and 1 signifies these things must happen. Once God starts something, he will finish it. At this point, the point in time frame that John is writing about is going to happen. And that is something that you can definitely bank on. You can count on it. Because God said it was going to happen, it will happen. Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it will not. He's waiting for the right moment. What is that moment? Nobody on earth will ever know until it happens. As a matter of fact, Christ himself tells us that he doesn't know when it's going to happen. Only God the Father knows when the time is up. But as I've often said, somewhere's today, somewhere's right now, the time has come up for someone. Somewhere's in the world, someone just passed away. I've read a statistic where it said that every three seconds someone dies on the earth. Well, while I said that, two people died. Another two people. Were they ready to go? I don't know. All I know is I can be ready. You can know that you can be ready. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that you can be ready. And you have to know that. Don't wait for the rapture. Don't wait for the end times because you don't know that you're going to live that long. Go now. Be ready now. Verse 2 says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John in his spirit visits the throne room of God. Revelation 1 and 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet, as of a trumpet. Revelation 17 and 10 says, So he carried me away in the Spirit. 
into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and seven horns. This corrupt body of flesh cannot and will not ever enter in to God's presence. This corrupt body of flesh cannot even look on God's face. Exodus 33 and 20 tells us, And he said that thou cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. He was talking to Moses. And Moses was probably the closest thing, especially at that time, there ever was to God. But he couldn't even look on God's face. Moses only saw God's back. And from then on, his face shone. And it scared the people so badly that Moses had to wear a veil when he was talking to them. He removed the veil when he was in front of God, but he put the veil on when he was in front of people. So yes, Moses did shine. He did glow, if you will. And no, that's not his aura. There is no such thing. Verse 3. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight, like unto an emerald. Well, now that's kind of an odd description, if you will. It's not describing the throne. It's describing who is sitting on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, and it looked like an emerald, using my own words. So he's not saying the throne looked like these gemstones. He's saying the person that's on the throne looked like, or the deity that's on the throne looked like these gemstones. So how do we reconcile this? How do we understand this? What does John see? How does he describe what God looks like? Remember, John uses terms and phrases that he's familiar with and that culture of that time understands. This does not detract from what he says, from what he writes, but in 21st century, it does tend to make it a little difficult to understand in our today's viewpoint, in our today's vernacular. We probably would not have said God looked like a jasper stone. And certainly we wouldn't have used the word sardine. Because when you say sardine in the 21st century, my granddaughter's going to curl her nose up and she's going to tell you right quick that sardines are nasty. And I don't see how you could eat them, Poppy. But it's not a sardine fish that they're talking about here. Let's, let's look at it. It has been approximately 2,000 years since Christ. I would say that the language spoken now would be difficult for people 2,000 years into the future if the Lord allows us to still be on the earth. As it is for us to ascertain exactly the message we are trying to convey. Today we talk in slang and call things that are impressive as sick. And those things that are cool as fat. But cool in the previous sentence does not mean temperature. It just means that it's neat. I can imagine a linguistics expert trying to explain our sentences 2,000 years from now. 
You know that there is a gold disk flying through space right now. It has left our solar system and it's in the outer bands. And on that is all kinds of messages, music and things, so that if aliens do exist and they, they take the, the uh, uh, Voyager probe and they find that gold disc, maybe they can figure out how to play this message and listen to it and look at the pictures and do all that kind of stuff. But that probe, Voyager, was launched back in the 70s. You think our language has changed even since then? I don't remember ever calling something sick when I was a kid in the 70s. And I certainly didn't say anything was fat unless it was heavy like me. But we've gotten to that point in our vernacular, in our, in our linguistics, that we have different ways of saying it. So let's look at what exactly is John trying to describe here? We must try not only interpret what John is saying, but also look at it through contextual eyes to fully grasp its meaning. God wants us to understand the scriptures, but sometimes he wants us to have knowledge on an as-need basis to understand as it is happening so we can say, so this is what you meant when it happens. God, the one that sat on the throne, looked like jasper and a sardine stone. So God was stone-faced, stoic, unwavering, and serious-looking. Well, he could have been. But that's not the image that John wants to convey here. Jasper, as we know it now, is a semi-precious gemstone. It's used to make jewelry. It is a silicon dioxide with a hexagonal matrix crystal, which makes it easy for skilled jewelry makers to cut and size. Because of the mineral deposits, it can come in just about any color. These mineral deposits or contamination means, in essence, that the stone is polluted. However, if you take the deposits of minerals away, the stone would be almost transparent like a diamond. How rare and beautiful would a pure jasper stone be to look at? Jasper being quartz crystal would shine and refract the light into a lot of brilliant points. If we would look at God on his throne, we may say he looked like diamonds shining. But in biblical days, diamonds weren't. They were not mentioned as stone used in the foundations of the holy city. Diamonds were mentioned in a couple of places but they weren't that important in the big scheme of things. Now, diamonds was used on some of the breastplates and some of the other things, but it specifically says jasper is used in the foundation of the building of New Jerusalem, the holy city. So John used a gemstone that was precious and easily recognized. Everybody knew what a jasper was when they read the book of Revelation. They understood what jasper was. The fourth row in Exodus 28 and 20, fourth row, a barrel, and an onyx, and a jasper. 
They shall be set in gold in their enclosing. And that's on the breastplate of the high priest. So they saw the jasper stone when they looked at the high priest. Several weeks ago, I mentioned that everything in heaven or everything on earth is a mirror image of things that's in heaven. The temple was built a certain fashion to mimic and mirror heaven. So we see that the breastplate of the high priest had jasper in it, had a jasper stone. There was three stones per row. There were four rows. Gave 12 stones. Each stone represented one of the tribes of Israel. Now they, they may have said, okay, this jasper stone represented Judah. I don't know that they got that specific, but each stone represented a tribe of Judah or a tribe of Israel. Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. And thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. And workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. So wast thou upon the holy mountain of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. We see here that they mention the word diamond. But it was very, very rare that diamond was talked about. Jasper was one of those stones. The scripture in Ezekiel chapter 28 was written by, note back, it was written by God describing Lucifer. Think about that. He described who we call Satan. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was thy covering. You had it all, you threw it away. The scripture was written regarding Lucifer. Notice Jasper is mentioned as a covering for him. Sardine or Sardis was on the high priest's breastplate as well as the Jasper stone. And it was also mentioned here. As a matter of fact, these two stones are the first and last stones mentioned as a gemstone on the breastplate. We'll let that soak in for just a few moments. He describes God using the two stones that was the first and the last. We just read about Jasper being the fourth row and it was the third stone over. Sardis or Sardine are the first stone. And thou shalt set in Exodus 28, 17 through 20. And thou shalt set in its settings of stone, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardis, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. Second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row of beryl and an onyx and a jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosing. But he describes God as the first and the last. The beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. Wait, that's how we describe Christ. You describe God the same way you describe Christ. Because if you see Christ, you see God the Father.
So God was here and he always will be. He is the Alpha, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. So it's no different, it's no wonder that John uses the first and the last stone to describe what he sees sitting on the throne. I see it no problem. But God's glowing, he's shining, he's putting off light. Sardine is translated as rubies or carnelian in other translations. The sardine and jasper stones mentioned in the foundation of New Jerusalem. Revelation 19 verses 19 and 20 says, And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, a caldosium. The fourth, an emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardis. The seventh, crystallite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, a topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, a jacinth. And the twelfth, an amethyst. The ruby is normally red and can be easily shined and polished. The clear jasper represents God's purity. Ruby red represents his redeeming power. So as John looks at God on the throne, he, John, sees God's glory and he radiates as if he is glowing. John sees these precious stones and later he realizes the foundation of New Jerusalem is built with these same stones in it, symbolizing that New Jerusalem is built on God. Around the throne was a rainbow of emerald green. After a hard winter, the spring comes with a promise of new life as everything greens up. My favorite time of the year is spring because I don't have to rake too many leaves. After uh, the winter, you know, you, you're waiting on that spring. You're waiting on this winter thaw. You're waiting for the trees to grow, start putting out new leaves. You're waiting for new life. The rainbow, which Noah first saw after leaving the ark, was a promise from God of never destroying the world again with a flood. This green rainbow is the promise of eternal life to all who is able to view the throne. Have you noticed that there are three major descriptions or parts of God on the throne? Jasper Stone. A sardis or sardine stone and a rainbow. And there are three parts to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Or God the Spirit. Each of the three represents a different aspect or character of the whole. Each is made of three that makes up the one. If you look really carefully in nature, you'll find that most everything in nature has three parts, three main parts. Now you can break those three main parts down as far as you want to go, but most everything, I don't know of anything that's not three parts. We'll even look at water for a second. If you know the chemical formula for water, it's H2O. That's two parts of hydrogen, one part of oxygen. Mm, I think two plus one equals three. How about a tree? A tree has its outer bark and its inner bark, and then it has the, the stem, the heart. Flower has the petal and the stamen and the pistil. 
just everything I can think of right now has three parts. There's the inner core, the mantle, and the crust. Oh, that's earth. Everything points in nature, points to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Now, you may fault me on that, and you may find something, oh, well, you're, you're breaking it down too simple. You see, I'm just an old, simple, dumb country boy from the mountains, and I believe that, you know, to keep it simple. But I can't think of anything, really, that doesn't have three parts. Even a family has father, the mother, and the children. Now, you don't have to have children to make a family, no. But most people believe that the family is complete when you have the children. So that's a mom, a dad, and the kids. Think about it. Think about it. Everything in nature points to three. Verse 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Around the throne of God are twenty-four seats occupied for twenty-four elders. Who are these elders? These elders, some believe, were the twelve disciples and the twelve tribes of Israel. However, John, one of the disciples, is looking on the scene. He clearly sees 24 elders, not 23. If he was looking on the scene, how could he also be occupying a seat around the throne? Yes, God could do this. He could show John an image of John worshiping at the throne. But God never changes in Malachi 3.6. He says, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If the Lord does not change, then heaven does not change. So the 24 elders have always been there around the throne. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles 24 and verse 4. King David divides the sons of Aaron into 24 divisions or courses. And there were more chief men found at the sons of Eleazar than in the sons of Ithamar, and those that were they divided. Among the sons of Eleazar were, there were 16 chief men of the house of their fathers and eight among the sons of Ithamar according to the house of their fathers. These are the division of the priest. Each priest performed a certain role or duty, including the duty of the priest in the temple. In Luke chapter 1, we read of the visitation to Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist. Luke 1 and verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. This tells us that Zacharias was a priest that was in the course or division of Abiah, a descendant of Levi who served in David's time. Luke 5 and 8, we see that he was executing his duties as priest in the temple. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, the division of the priest into 24 courses or divisions represented the 24 elders around the throne again 
earth mirroring heaven. This is not the 12 disciples and the 12 tribes. This is the 24 priests, if you will. As they worshiped God, they placed their crowns at his feet. They became subject to him. He ruled them just as the priest would go in and were subject to him in the Holy of Holies. They are subject to him around the throne. They wore crowns. They were the heads of something. We normally say crowns are kings and queens. But they ruled over. They were the priest. Or the priest mirrored after the 24. But you say, well, David was the one that divided up the priest. At the urging of the Holy Spirit. Oh, but wait. David was in the New Old Testament. Holy Spirit wasn't there. Then tell me how Genesis happened. Genesis 1 and 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit moved upon the darkness. That Spirit is God the Spirit, God the Holy Ghost, God the Holy Spirit, however you want to call him. So God the Holy Spirit urged David to divide the priest into 24 divisions. Why 24? Because it mirrors the 24 elders around the throne. Now you can fault me on this and you can fight me for all you wish. I don't care. This is what the scriptures teaches me. Out of the throne, verse 5, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Oh, we're, we're seeing the seven lamps again. On Mount Sinai in Exodus, we see a similar scene. When God descended on the top of the mountain, we see this scene. Exodus 19 and 16 says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Scientists tells us that the heat of lightning can briefly exceed the heat of the sun, our sun, because the pressure and the temperature of the surrounding air increases rapidly from the heat of the lightning bolt, we hear the thunder. God has so much power that the atmosphere surrounding his presence heats up and the pressure of the atmosphere increases. Thunder is mentioned in Revelation seven times. Seven times thunder is mentioned in Revelation. Notice we keep coming up to these themes. We see seven lamps. We see seven spirits. We see seven thunders. We see seven is, a, is the complete number for God. Revelation 4 and verse 5 says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation 6 and 1 says, And when I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. Revelation 8 and 5 says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. 
The temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Revelations 14 and 2, And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Revelation 16 and 18, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake, so great. Revelation 19 and 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The seven spirits of God, we saw this, which were the there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God represents the seven characteristics of the spirit. Isaiah 11, 2 through 3, we see and we read these character traits of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, that's one. And understanding, that's two. The spirit of counsel, that's three. And the spirit of might, that's four. The spirit of knowledge, that's five. And of the fear of the Lord, that's six. And shall make him of quick understanding, that's the seventh one, in the fear of the Lord. So let's read that again without me counting. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord but the beginning of wisdom? We have to have wisdom to discern what God is trying to teach us and what God is trying to tell us. We have to have these seven spirits. We have to at least have the fear of the Lord so we can have the wisdom, so we can discern what God is trying to teach us. We are in the throne room of the mighty God. And we are looking through John's eyes at what he saw in the Spirit. And what he saw in the Spirit was magnificent. But it also had to be very terrifying when you think about it. But God doesn't want us that, God doesn't want us terrified. He wants us to be afraid of him. He wants us to have the fear of the Lord. And that's not, oh my gosh, he can kill us. Yes, he can kill us. But you should have a reverential fear whenever you are in the presence of God or whenever you're in the presence of one of God's people. You should have that fear of the Lord. And unfortunately, that fear of the Lord has gone away in a lot of people because they don't understand. They don't recognize and they don't understand what they're doing is detrimental not only to their physical being, but to their soul in general. So I encourage you this, this week, between now and next Thursday, Read over chapter 4 of Revelation. Read it, reread it, and re-reread it, and just continue to read it, and get into the presence of the Lord, and let him show you what he's trying to tell you. We see that God is his glory, his Shekinah glory, and it glows from the throne. It, it shines out like a diamond would diffract the lights. It's just... It's just glittering all over the place. It's just pinpoint pricks of light all over the place. And we see the green 
emerald rainbow that, that gives us the promise of eternal life and a new life. We, we hear that there is the tw 24 elders, is what they're called. We see them, we, we understand that they fall down, they, they have their crowns and they're worshiping the Lord. Day in and day out. So you see, God doesn't, and that's their job. We read a little bit later on about the beasts that are flying, the four beasts. There's a calf, and there's a man, and there's a lion. And the other one escapes me right now. It's not a bear. The bear's over in Daniel. Uh, but we see those four beasts. And... They had six wings, and we get into that a little bit later on in in verse or in chapter four. But there is a man, and there is a cow or a calf, and then there's the. Uh, I'm going to find it. It's going to drive me crazy. Lion, calf, man, and an eagle. We see those four beasts flying around the throne. That's their job. That's what they are required to do. So he could have forced you to love him and he could have forced you to worship him and he could have forced you to serve him. But he gives us the option. He, these 24 elders, the four beasts, they don't have the option. They do this because that's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're required to do. That's what they're made to do. But you have the option. That means that you're not up there with God, but you're above the angels. So I'm here to inform you that God loves you very much or he wouldn't have allowed his son to die on the cross of Calvary. He loves you enough that his son came and died on the cross of Calvary, but he also loves you enough that gives you an option to love him back or to spite him. That is up to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come before you and worship, to praise, and to study your word. Lord, we ask that you'll move and that you'll touch on each and every one that's listening. And Lord, that you'll stretch forth your hand on their lives, Lord. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Until we see each other again, take care of each other. God loves you.